0: Listening to episode four of Making Peace with Emotions, a podcast where we search for clarity about the complexities of emotional problems, with the hope of finding some helpful insights that we can apply to get over our problems. In 2008, I first became a client of the psychologist and author Dr. Amar Barada. Amr helped me to see how some of my strengths as an analytical problem solver were actually tripping me up in some tricky ways when it came to how I processed my emotions. I learned that far from being irrational, people with emotional problems are pretty much across the board highly and even excessively rational. So the usual approaches to addressing emotional problems, such as trying to think more rationally or positively, can actually reinforce our problems. The skills I learned from Amr involve validating feelings rather than trying to change them or make strong cases for why we shouldn't feel them. Amr died last year, and I've created this podcast to share what I learned from him. In these first 14 episodes, I'm reading chapters from Amr's book for clients called Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. His model for making peace with all emotions, including anxiety and depression, helped me to get onto the path of better and better emotional health. And I want to spread his insights far and wide in this world that increasingly needs them. Appreciating complexity is one of the things people with emotional problems often need to learn to do. I sure needed to. Those of us with emotional problems often have two simultaneous yet incompatible beliefs. One is that emotional problems should be easy to get over. We go to the therapist, the therapist figures out what's wrong with us, fixes us, then we feel better from now on, like going to get antibiotics for an infection. We also believe something else, and this feels like a dirty secret, that actually our emotional problems are signs of a deep abnormality, a physiological flaw that can never be understood or recovered from. These two contradicting beliefs lie on the extreme polar ends of a continuum between recovery is easy and recovery is impossible. Healing happens in the middle area between these two poles. Recovery is difficult, but it's also possible. That's why I say Dr. Barata helped me to get better and better, rather than to get well. The belief that emotional wellness is a state where you feel good all the time is one thing that gets in the way of us finding authentic serenity. Feeling good all the time is a goal that is impossible to attain. And when we think it is possible, or beyond that when we think it's the only acceptable way to be, and that it should be easy to attain that state, then we feel devastated, and our self-esteem suffers when we don't attain this goal of never feeling anxious or never feeling depressed, which we think of as what it means to be healthy. But, unlike achieving a state of perfection, getting incrementally better and better is a realistic endeavor. We can take doable, possible, incremental steps in the direction of a life that has more serenity, more meaning, more efficacy, and more pleasure. And it might help to know that this road to better and better has peaks and valleys. It follows a pattern of three steps forward and two steps back. It's not a straight line. It involves relapses. And relapses are not only unavoidable, but are necessary for long-term recovery. We'll talk more about relapses on future episodes. They happen farther along on the path of Better and Better. I mention them now to highlight the difference between aiming for a state, where only positive feelings have meaning, versus a path, where we walk in the direction of finding more meaning in both negative and positive feelings. For now, we're talking about how to get started on that path. In last week's episode, I read the third chapter in Amr's book, Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. In it, Amr mentions the difference between being bothered versus being troubled. Understanding this difference is one of the first steps to getting on the path of better and better. The way emotional problems are created, maintained, and recovered from doesn't vary much from person to person. But the content, what it is that we're afraid of, or depressed about, or obsessed about, this is different from person to person, depending on what each person finds most meaningful. One person's anxiety problem might center around fear of having a heart attack, while someone else's problem might concern being judged by others. If these two people were to have a conversation, they might wonder why the other person would be so afraid of the things that they're afraid of. Yet, each of them does feel bothered by the idea of a heart attack and of being judged by others. The difference is, each of them is not only bothered by the content of their emotional problem, they are troubled by it. One of the things that I used to be troubled by is space, like outer space. When I was a young child, I was fascinated by space, by stars and planets and black holes, and I fantasized about what extraterrestrial life might be like. I took astronomy classes in high school and college, and though I never developed a passion for the hands-on doing of the science of astronomy, I loved to soak up the beauty and ponder the meaning of the discoveries astronomers made. In my mid-twenties, I guess I just kind of forgot about space. It wasn't on my mind a lot. I had a lot to deal with on planet Earth. A traumatic end to my marriage, picking up the pieces of my life, the suicide of a close friend, lots of intense work on music projects, and frustrating situations of disagreement within my bands. By the time my 28th birthday arrived, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to make sure my band's album was recorded and produced perfectly, and to please everyone in the band some of whom felt the album was taking too long, while others felt it needed more work. I was drinking a lot at night, and trying to acquire the taste for marijuana, even though I'd hated the feeling of being high in the past. So I'd stress out about my band situation all day, have a few beers and maybe some pot at night, and entertain myself somehow until I went to bed. When I'd get high, one of the things I would do to entertain myself was to put on some music, search online for an image of the Hubble Deep Field photograph, and zoom in and out of it, mesmerizing myself with a poor man's warp effect. The Hubble Deep Field is an image constructed from hundreds of exposures, taken by the Hubble Space Telescope over a period of 10 days in 1995. I recommend looking it up and learning about it. The experts can tell you the facts about it better than I can. The basic idea is astronomers wanted to see what they'd find when they looked as far into space as they could. And when they zoomed in on this tiny portion of the sky, they found 3,000 galaxies, some of them 12 billion light-years away. And that area they zoomed in on was just a 24 millionth of the whole sky. In 2004, they took another picture called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, And in this little pixel of the sky, they saw 10,000 galaxies. I like to zoom in and out on that one, too. This was a neato activity when I was looking for escape and had some chemicals in me. But the next morning when I'd see the image of all those galaxies left up on my computer screen, I'd feel differently than I had the night before. I was uncomfortable with it. My feelings don't seem so mysterious when I say it that way. I was uncomfortable. I was scared the reality of the vastness of space frightened me. But here's the thing that's tricky about writing to you about how I felt in the past. I was talking to myself differently in the past than I would today. And the way I was talking to myself had everything to do with why I had an emotional problem. At the time, I was surprised by my new fear of space, since it had typically been something I was comfortable with and enjoyed thinking about. Instead of making sense of my fear and seeing it in the context of what was happening in my life, I began to interpret the fear as a sign of mental illness. I might find myself in the grocery store with friends and happen to see a photo of a spiral galaxy on a magazine cover. I would think about how that galaxy contains a hundred billion stars, and how just the distance between one star and another is so far that scientists are unsure whether it's possible for humans to ever feasibly travel between them. Then I would think about how there are a hundred billion galaxies in the known universe, and I'd start to worry that it's not safe for my mind to contemplate such overwhelming things. That I needed to be careful about allowing myself to feel too much anxiety, or else I might wind up crossing some threshold of mental illness and never come back. Then I'd tell myself I have to be able to think about space, like everyone else, and I must not be overwhelmed by it, and if I can't do that, then that's a sign I'm mentally ill. I must not think about space, and I must think about it. A double bind. Everyone with an emotional problem is trapped in some kind of double bind like this. And in this episode's chapter from Amr's book, we'll start to hear about how they are resolved. When we're in a double bind, we're giving ourselves two simultaneous and opposite imperatives. And the natural response to telling yourself you must do something and must not do it is panic. So I'd panic standing there in line at the grocery store. And I'd get quiet. And I'd be afraid everyone could tell I was quiet and that I was acting mentally ill, and that I was mentally ill. I'd try my hardest to pretend like nothing was wrong, and then I'd try to get away from everyone, maybe to go to the bathroom so I could be alone and not worry about showing my fear to anyone. And this behavior of heading to the bathroom when I was scared, I shamed myself for it and told myself only a sick person would do such a thing. My panic about space would happen automatically whenever I'd see space pictures out and about or on TV or when I'd look up at the stars and moon at night. I'd try to avoid situations where I'd be reminded about space, but it's pretty hard to avoid noticing the sky. It never would have occurred to me back then that the road to recovery would involve validating my feelings and behaviors, including the avoidance. What I thought was happening was that I was feeling things that were inappropriate and made no sense. What was actually going on was I was reconnecting with an interest in space, which I hadn't explored for a few years. And I was feeling overwhelmed and frightened by what I was learning. The larger context of my feelings was I was approaching 30, putting a lot of pressure on myself, and grieving and feeling my own mortality related to my friend ending his life how much sense it makes to feel scared about death and the vast mystery of space, how common, even universal, an experience, especially as one grows older. But I wasn't able to see the sense these feelings made or how normal they were. It was at this point in my life that I became a client of Dr. Amr Bharata. On the day of my first session with Amr, I entered his waiting room and sat nervously on a sofa. Across from me was a small desk, and, on top, a stereo playing classical music. Next to the stereo was a small picture frame, the kind you'd see on a person's office desk, displaying a picture of their spouse or kids. Except the photograph in this frame was of a spiral galaxy. On the coffee table before me, magazines were spread out like in a doctor's office. Half of them were psychology today, and the other half were astronomy magazines, I was scared of the magazines and the picture of the galaxy, yet at the same time, because of them, I felt like I was in the right place. During my first session with Amr, I learned that astronomy was one of his passions. I learned that after he first stopped being troubled by his own agoraphobia and generalized anxiety disorder, one of the first things he felt inspired to do was read voraciously about astronomy and start paying attention to the news every day. He wanted to know what was going on in the world he found himself in, rather than try to protect himself from feeling uncomfortable. I asked if outer space had ever scared him. He said, it still does. Zillions of galaxies out there, all crashing into each other. This is when I was first introduced to the difference between being bothered and being troubled. As normal as this idea may sound to someone who hasn't endured an emotional problem, Something I hadn't considered before was the idea that being scared of something isn't a problem. My attitude toward fear at that time was that it was weak, and that if you felt too much of it, something was wrong with you, or feeling too much of it would harm you. I also believed admitting your fears to others was weak, and telling yourself you're not afraid would keep fear away. That's what it means to be troubled by fear. Being troubled by fear starts with believing that feeling fear is unacceptable and unhealthy. In other words, interpreting fear as dangerous. Then, when I notice myself getting scared, I see myself as in danger. And what's the natural emotional response to perceiving something as dangerous? You guessed it. Fear. That's a vicious cycle. I'm afraid, then I'm afraid of being afraid. And then... When I see my fear about fear as dangerous, I become afraid of being afraid of being afraid, and so on. So when I would look at the Hubble Deep Field photo, I wasn't just feeling scared at the vast mystery of space. I was also telling myself that my fear was abnormal, and something I should be able to eliminate. So I needed to learn how to validate my fear of space, which I did, over time. I came to see that my being bothered by space was not an indication that I should stop thinking about it. It's possible to be uncomfortable with something and at the same time enjoy it and find meaning in it. In fact, this is what people without emotional problems do all day. They're scared of space, and germs, and death just as much as anyone. But they're able to make sense of their fears and so aren't troubled by them. I'm as thrilled by space now as when I was a kid. I love to read books and watch documentaries about all the crazy stuff to be found beyond the blue bubble of our sky. A favorite, perfectly sober, pastime of mine is looking at photos of Jupiter and Saturn and their wild moons, or gazing at Vega, which is one of the only stars I can see from my window through the big city light pollution, and thinking back to what I was doing 25 years ago when these photons now reaching my eyes were first released from the star. And yeah, this stuff all scares me sometimes. It also fills me with feelings of beauty, curiosity, adventure, and awe. One more note on this. Learning to validate and normalize my fears about space, and other fears, was an important component of my recovery. Another important component was learning to validate my fear about fear, and my fear about my psychological health. All of these fears make sense. Fear always makes sense. My fears are about what is most meaningful to me, and my psychological health is meaningful to me. It doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong about something actually being a threat. If I think it might be a threat, then my fear makes sense. It turned out that my belief that there was something wrong with me was a belief worth questioning, and that after getting better information, my beliefs changed and I did feel less afraid about my own emotional health. But the emotion of fear itself was never a problem. The fear was an expression of my care for myself and my desire to be healthy and functional. Yay for fears. I'm going to read chapter four of Amr's book now. The book is Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. You can find the book on lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U. You can get it in print or in ebook form and I highly recommend it. If there are questions and topics you'd like me to talk about on future episodes of this podcast, you can contact me through my website. My website is marshallbolin.com www.m a r s h a l l b o l i n. Just go to the contact page and there'll be a form and you can ask me whatever is on your mind. Chapter 4, Putting Life on Hold, Complications and the Need for Simplicity. The heavy-duty bombardment that people inflict on themselves with the excessive use of ATOC leads directly to psychological problems. It causes enormous complications that become very difficult to resolve. People with emotional problems try very hard to avoid complexities in their lives. And by so doing, they create never-ending complications. A major example is how emotionally troubled people put their lives on hold. There is a very strong tendency to engage in the kind of all-or-nothing thinking that says, If I can't live my life perfectly, or exactly the way I want it, I'll put it on hold until I can. Or, If I can't be sure I'll be free of anxiety, I won't do it. Or, If I can't stop feeling depressed, I'm going to give up. It is no wonder that people with emotional problems are excessive avoiders. Let us look at the dynamics of regular B-talk and excessive B-talk. The Dynamics of B-talk. Regular B-talk. Regular B-talk allows us to be gentle with ourselves, to be compassionate with ourselves, comfort ourselves, to humanize ourselves. We give ourselves a break. We accept ourselves as we are and try not to change ourselves drastically. It allows us to abstain from being overextended, to have reasonable expectations, to slow down, and to refrain from vigorous attempts to control our thoughts and emotions. It promotes an easygoing way of living. It has a calming effect, unlike A-talk, which has an arousing effect. Regular B-talk provides a balance to regular A-talk. Whenever the two styles act in unison, in a state of equilibrium, we are likely to have peace of mind and to conduct ourselves effectively. With emotionally troubled people, the A-talk and B-talk are out of balance. They are in a state of disequilibrium. Sufferers flip-flop from one extreme to the other. They either do too much or too little. They either want to do things perfectly or not at all. People with emotional problems are not adept at regular B-talk. They find it difficult to nurture themselves, to accept themselves as they authentically are, to be easygoing, to slow down, to have sensible expectations, to allow themselves to suffer and to have negative thoughts and feelings. It is essential for people with emotional problems to learn a new belief system that is self-nurturing, self-accepting, and non-perfectionistic. They need to find a way to know the difference between the need to be effortful and the need to be easygoing, to develop the skill to know when to arouse themselves and when to calm themselves, to know when control is possible or desirable and when it isn't. They need to know what to leave alone, and when to effortfully challenge themselves. Recovery becomes possible only when people learn how to listen to their indiscriminate use of ATOC, appreciate the harmful effects it has on their lives, and find new ways of talking to themselves along the lines of regular B-talk. Whereas excessive ATOC tends to complicate our lives, regular B-talk has a simplifying effect. 1. Self-nurturing Instead of seeing ourselves as defective and persistently shaming ourselves, B-talk allows us to see ourselves as normal people, to see ourselves in a positive light, and to nurture ourselves. We are engaging in B-talk whenever we see our feelings as normal and valid and as making sense, rather than abnormal, invalid, and senseless. We do not see our negative emotions, no matter how intense and unpleasant they may be, as signs of impairment, or as eccentric, but as natural expressions and as useful responses to the world around us. 2. Self-acceptance Regular B-talk allows us to be who we are. It helps us be permissive of our thoughts and emotions. We accept negative emotions as part of life and see them as useful and adaptive. We are receptive to being who we are and are willing to live naturally and authentically. Three, (laughs) non-perfectionism. If our thoughts and emotions are normal and acceptable, we shouldn't see the need to do much about them. A-talk is a doing mode, whereas B-talk is a non-doing mode. We are apt to listen to our emotions, make sense of them, and leave them alone. The following are some examples of regular B-talk. They're basically the opposite of the excessive A-talk that was described in the previous chapter. Try to compare the two. At first, you might resist seeing that regular B talk has any merit to it, which makes sense because your present belief system does not contain too much regular B talk. It is overly dominated by the excessive A talk, and, as we shall see, excessive B talk. Long term recovery is not possible without becoming fluent in regular B talk until it becomes routinely available, accessible, and believable. In short, until it becomes second nature to you. It becomes an integral part of your regular way of living. One, the first cluster of regular B-talk revolves around self-nurturing, self-validating beliefs. One, my thoughts and feelings are basically very normal. It's how I process them that has caused them to become problems. The less I see them as abnormal, the less problematic they will be. 2. My thoughts and feelings are valid. There's nothing particularly wrong with them. It's my perception that they're invalid that leads to problems. 3. There's nothing particularly defective about me. The reason I often overreact is that I've trained my mind to do so. 4. Whatever I'm feeling makes a lot of sense and is not mysterious. If I can't make sense of my thoughts and feelings, it's because I'm unwilling or unable to see the sense that they make. 5. I recognize that I have trouble nurturing myself. I put myself down persistently and indiscriminately. I often do battle with myself. My long-term recovery depends on abstaining from this internal, self-inflicted warfare. And making peace with myself, a process that will involve patience and persistence. 2. The second cluster of regular B-talk revolves around acceptance. My thoughts and feelings are acceptable. I'm willing to suffer, to be uncomfortable, to have negative thoughts and feelings. I am receptive to being fallible, to being vulnerable. Three, the third cluster of regular B-talk revolves around non-perfectionism. I will try to have sensible expectations and not constantly pressure myself with setting up high expectations. I will try to see failure and imperfection as normal and acceptable. I will try to see the relative value of things, and that very little exists on an absolute all-or-nothing scale. Anything can be better or worse depending on one's perspective. I will try to slow down and desist from constantly speeding through life. I will try to abstain from insisting on being in control and getting rid of anything that bothers me or is uncomfortable. I will try to see the value of discriminating between what I can control and what I cannot control, especially when it comes to subjective processes. I will try to abstain from living my life performatively and with extreme effort. Excessive B-talk People with emotional problems flip-flop back and forth between excessive A-talk and excessive B-talk. They try effortfully to live perfect lives that are free from negative thoughts and feelings, And when they don't succeed, they have a strong tendency to switch to the opposite extreme. They give up trying. I think of that as excessive B-talk. They put their lives on hold in some way or another. This tendency can be so extreme that people stop living meaningful, purposeful lives. Their lives become static, devoid of vitality. They end up stagnating. Someone with social anxiety stops having meaningful social contacts and becomes severely withdrawn. Someone with agoraphobia limits her mobility, even becoming virtually housebound. Someone with generalized anxiety is so paralyzed by obsessive worrying that it consumes his life. Someone with a fear of driving simply stops driving. Someone with a severe case of depression abstains from living meaningfully and purposefully. The excessive escape and avoidance behaviors are seen in this book as manifestations of excessive B-talk. The thought processes are mostly dominated by an all-or-nothing way of thinking. If I can't be sure I won't be anxious, I won't do it at all. If I can't completely get over my depression, I'll put my life on hold until I do. I will avoid all places where I suspect that I might have a panic attack. I won't go anywhere until I'm feeling good. If I feel uncomfortable, I will leave right away. I'll stop seeing my psychologist if I'm not over my problem after a few visits. Carried to an extreme, this kind of thinking obviously leads to extreme emotional, mental, social, and occupational dysfunction. Recovery from emotional problems depends on finding ways to stay away from the excesses of A-talk and B-talk by seeking more moderation and more harmony between these two opposite ways of thinking. The opposite of doing things perfectly is doing things as well as one can, rather than giving up. And the opposite of extreme avoidance is not going back to excessive effort and perfectionism. It involves a more moderate and sensible approach to engaging in the challenges of life. Let us illustrate the main points made so far in this book with the examples of Susan and Larry and Larissa. All the names in this book are fictional. Susan. Susan was terrified of public speaking, and she shamed herself persistently for having that fear. She told herself her fears do not make any sense, that they are unacceptable, and that she has to put an end to them. She felt overwhelmed whenever she had to give a public presentation, and felt her career was threatened by these stupid fears. And so she instructed herself to bring them under control. When she gave a presentation, she told herself she had to make sure to be super calm and give no indication that she was in the least bit nervous. She firmly believed anxiety was a sign of weakness. All this was done effortfully and with great resolve, motivation, and high seriousness. She was constantly and completely determined and committed to giving high-quality presentations that are perfect or close to perfect. With that kind of self-talk swirling in her mind, her fears actually got worse and became unmanageable. She obsessed daily about her fears. She became a nervous wreck just thinking about the situations she feared. At the same time, she started to avoid public speaking and eventually completely avoided giving any kind of presentation. The last time she gave a presentation, she was so uncomfortable that she vowed never to do it again. She told herself she was unable to do it, because the thought of being very anxious was so aversive that she felt humiliated by the prospect that it would have a debilitating effect on her performance. She was also alarmed by these strong and, to her, mysterious anxious feelings. No normal person, she told herself, should have such strong feelings. She had persistent catastrophic thoughts about being in front of an audience, shaking like a leaf, sweating with anxiety, babbling and being totally incoherent, even though she knew from experience that none of this actually happened, that the worst that took place was that she was a little jittery at the beginning of a presentation. And she chided herself for having these catastrophic thoughts, seeing them as irrational, senseless, and unnecessary. Just thinking about the situation would lead her into an overwhelming frenzy of thoughts and emotions. The more she pushed herself to control the thoughts and emotions, the more she dwelled on them, until her mind became super vigilant of them, so that eventually the slightest hint that she was thinking about the situation would lead to a torrent of atok. Telling herself to not think about the fearful thoughts obviously made her think about the thoughts. The more shaming, intolerant, and controlling she became of the fearful thoughts, the more troubled she was by them, which made the fears even more likely to intensify and be even more troublesome which she then responded to with more self-shaming, intolerance of her thoughts and feelings, and a renewed determination to control and eliminate them. The result was a vicious cycle between fearful thoughts and the excessive ATOC. The more scared she was, the more she engaged in the ATOC, which then led to a further intensification of her fears, and so on. She felt forced into abandoning all efforts to give presentations, for her thoughts told her that the shame she would experience if she gave up a defective presentation would be too unbearable. The torment that was persistently felt by Susan continued even though she stopped giving presentations, since she shamed herself mercilessly for her avoidances, telling herself she was a coward and a dismal failure. It is a mistake to think that it was the anxiety that caused the problem to get out of hand. Handled differently, the anxiety would have never become a problem. It was the way she was handling it that led to a serious problem. It was the constant shaming of herself, her intolerance of her thoughts and feelings, and her vigorous attempts to control them that created a problem. Had she treated the fears in a natural, easygoing style that is permissive of negative thoughts and emotions, that is, with regular B-talk, the problem would have never developed. As a result of this heavy bombardment of excessive A-talk, her fears became progressively more persistent and more automatic, so that they developed a life of their own. They became autonomous. The harder she shamed herself, and the harder she tried to control her fearful thoughts, the more vigilant her mind became of them, so that her mind would overreact at the slightest thought of the fearful events. She became afraid of being afraid of being afraid, ad infinitum, in an endlessly uncontrolled spiral. Her fears perpetuated themselves. Her fears became fearful, and her fear of fear became fearful. She not only obsessed about her fears, but also obsessed about her obsessions, so that the obsessive process itself became chronic and autonomous. Her mind became so engrossed with her fears that it had little space for much else. She focused very little on her personal life and even less on her duties at work. Her mind had become so overworked with the excessive talk that it became overloaded and overextended. Her daily life became severely impaired. She couldn't focus or concentrate on most of her daily activities. She stopped reading, playing the piano, or spending time with her children. She felt persistently depressed. It's a mistake to think that what led to this problem was an irrational way of thinking, that had she approached her problem with more rationality, it would have never gotten out of hand. Susan, in fact, was an extremely rational, analytical, intellectual kind of person who put a great deal of effort into trying to be rational about this problem, but never with any success. It's also a mistake to think that Susan had a negative personality, and that had she been more of a positive person, more of an optimist, she would have overcome her problem. In fact, long before she sought therapy, Susan had doggedly tried hard to end the negative thoughts and replace them with positive ones to no avail. She had tried hard to persistently engage in positive affirmations as a way of ending her negative thoughts and emotions. But all that did was make her more negative about her negativity. The positive thoughts were not authentic and had little believability. It is also a mistake to think that Susan's anxiety stemmed from an inability to relax. In fact, she had excellent relaxation skills. She had taken a relaxation course, had tried meditation, and various other techniques, but none of them had helped with this problem. After a relaxation session, she would feel physically relaxed, but the problem remained intact. What all these pursuits had in common was that they reinforced her strong determination to rid herself of anxiety. And at some point, even relaxation became an aversive experience, for the problem remained unchanged. And after a relaxation session, she would say her body would be relaxed, but her mind was still like a zoo, buzzing away with tormenting thoughts about her failure to control her problem and the probability that her job would be in danger of termination. Her job was so meaningful and purposeful to her that she exerted all this enormous pressure on herself to not allow any thoughts of failure. She was constantly reminded of her mother's admonitions to her that in order to succeed, she had to overextend herself without restraint. That's the same message that she heard throughout her childhood. Failure is unacceptable. If you want to succeed, you have to work at it incessantly and flawlessly. Her excessive need for thought control persistently led to a state of emotional and mental exhaustion. A Profound Burnout which ultimately led her to decide to permanently discontinue giving presentations, excessive B-talk, and she even came close to quitting her job. On the one hand, she had felt obligated to get rid of these fears completely and immediately and to give presentations of very high quality, but at the same time she became progressively abstinent from challenging herself. The result was a double bind, which led to a powerful feeling of mental and emotional entrapment. It is impossible to do something perfectly and not do it at all at the same time. In therapy, Susan was encouraged to take risks and return to public speaking, as required by her job, thus ending the extreme avoidance, the excessive B-talk. At the same time, she was encouraged to gradually stay away from a perfectionistic approach and engage in a more moderate style of dealing with her fears. She encouraged herself to face the discomfort of her fearful thoughts, motivating herself in a moderate manner to take risks with challenging situations. She was encouraged to find situations at first that were manageable and had a chance of success as a way of building up her self-confidence, such as giving brief presentations to audiences she perceived as friendly and safe. This is the more moderate style of ATOC we are referring to as regular A-talk. These challenges required courage, motivation, and determination, but they did not require an excess of these qualities for the excess would have interfered with her ability to give presentations. She was thorough in her preparation, but not too thorough. Often the best public speakers prepare a vague outline and leave a lot of room for spontaneity for once they become immersed in their presentation, their fears rapidly dissipate. At the same time, she instructed herself to abstain from insisting on success, to be permissive of the anxiety and to try not blaming herself if the challenges she took on did not turn out exactly the way she wanted. This is the easygoing, permissive, self-accepting style we are referring to as regular B-talk. Just before she gave a presentation, she would tell herself to slow down and be permissive of the anxiety she was feeling, and to be authentic with herself by staying away from the false reassurances that said that this should be an easy challenge or that she would have no difficulties with it. Instead of these false reassurances, she was prepared for the probability that this would be a difficult presentation, that there was no getting away from the fact that she would be uncomfortable, and that the outcome may turn out to be disappointing. Susan's approach was balanced. She encouraged herself to take risks and challenge herself, while at the same time adopting a self-nurturing, self-accepting style that allowed her to be receptive to any outcome. Such a balanced approach was very effective for the more she was willing to be authentic with herself and not insist on performing perfectly, and the more her expectations were sensible and attainable, the more she was willing to take risks, which would help improve her sense of competency, which would then bolster her self-confidence in taking even more risks. Her self-confidence improved so much, as did her perception that she could manage her anxiety well, that she eventually was not only willing to give presentations, but actually sought opportunities to give more presentations. The quality of her personal and professional life improved considerably, so that eventually she would describe herself as a happy, contented person. Larry. Larry had a persistent, highly developed fear of driving, especially on freeways. He berated himself strongly for having that fear, he told himself he had to stop being afraid and to learn right away how to control and get rid of his fears. This is the excessive ATOC, and only served to intensify his fears. The more he pressured himself, and the more effortfully he pushed himself to drive on the freeway, the more scared he became. He developed a persistent fear of being afraid. However, at the same time, Larry decided to extensively avoid driving, which also intensified his fears because it reinforced his perception that driving was dangerous and that he was not capable of driving without unmanageable anxiety. Instead of just being afraid, he became convinced that driving was much too dangerous. By avoiding the freeway, he also avoided the anxiety he feared. Whenever he drove, he was a nervous wreck trying very hard to circumvent the anxiety by engaging in thought-stopping and forceful distractions. He kept telling himself this problem had to be eliminated, for it threatened his ability to be mobile, to go to work, and to be a socially viable human being. He constantly reassured himself that he had nothing to be afraid of, that his fears were irrational and, quote, silly, and that he had to replace them with positive thoughts. He tried hard to relax while driving, thinking that he wouldn't be anxious if he was relaxed, and not appreciating that being relaxed while driving was a lot more dangerous than being anxious. None of this worked, so he tried harder to make it work, attributing his failure to insufficient motivation and effort. He would engage in breathing exercises, kept pushing himself to face his fears, and admonished himself for being cowardly. The more the atok, the worse his problem became. And the worse it became, the harder he would shame himself, the more unaccepting he was of his fears, and the more vigorously he would motivate himself to succeed at all the strategies he was trying. And so, on the one hand, he pressured himself excessively to succeed at driving, while at the same time he gradually stopped challenging himself. This is a guaranteed prescription for the development of an anxiety problem, and it was in part fueled by all-or-nothing thinking. He either had to succeed, which to him meant being totally free of anxiety, or he was going to give up on driving altogether. Just like Susan, Larry was trapped. He was the victim of his own psychological self-entrapment. He could not avoid driving, for the avoidance was shameful and unacceptable, and very threatening to his well-being and to his vitality as a well-functioning human being. And yet, he could not get himself to drive, since that would surely lead to unmanageable anxiety, which was also shameful and unacceptable. Unable to explain this problem in simple and accurate terms, he became convinced that his problem was a sign of a deeply rooted impairment. He continuously pressured himself vigorously to drive, and to do so perfectly, which meant he had to drive without anxiety, especially panic attacks, and without any, quote, defective behavior, such as pulling over. And yet he became so fearful of driving that he told himself he must not expose himself to the terrors of anxiety and panic. He was damned if he drove, and damned if he didn't. This is a theme that pervades all emotional problems. A more balanced approach was called for. On the one hand, Larry was encouraged to see the damage caused by this style of excessively shaming himself, being intolerant of his thoughts and feelings, and trying hard to control and get rid of anything that was uncomfortable and that he perceived as defective. These defects included feeling anxious or having what he called silly, stupid, and irrational thoughts. He was encouraged instead to try a more easygoing, non-shaming, less perfectionistic driving style, taking his time to get over the problem, and allowing himself to flow naturally with his thoughts and feelings rather than his customary vigorous efforts to control and eliminate them. At the same time, he was encouraged to start taking risks with driving and incrementally step up the risk-taking so that he could eventually resolve the extensive avoidances. He was encouraged to make sense of his fears, such as seeing that these fears were not senseless, but had meaning. For example, he came to understand why he felt threatened by his catastrophic thoughts about driving. The anxiety would lead to restricted mobility, and eventually to a complete inability to drive, which to him would be an unimaginable disaster. It would threaten his self-perception of being a vital, competent, and well-functioning human being. He was encouraged to be permissive of his thoughts and feelings while he was driving, or even when he was thinking about driving. He was encouraged to stay away from perceiving driving as a performance that he needed to accomplish without anxiety, and see it as a means of transportation. He gradually stayed away from his insistence on perfectionistic behavior, lowering his expectations of doing well, allowing himself to, quote, fail to get off the freeway or pull over if the anxiety became unmanageable, to slow down, and to flow more naturally with his thoughts and feelings. The years of managing his anxiety problem with excessive ATOC had only caused extensive avoidance, detesting driving freeways, and becoming depressed about how awful his life had become, since he came to depend on other people to drive him around. He often felt disgraced and humiliated by his behavior, since he didn't see why anyone would have this kind of problem but this approach had dramatic results for him. He was pleasantly surprised by how manageable his problem became and how, in fact, he began to enjoy driving. His mobility gradually increased until the fear perceptions rarely occurred. He did nothing drastic to change himself, and yet his life became transformed from a chronically fearful and avoidant person to becoming someone who lived a more vital and purposeful life. He became patient, giving himself as much time as was needed to get over his problem. While driving, he would try to be accepting of his fearful thoughts, and even when he was thinking of his fears in the comfort of his own home, he would stay with his fears and not try to manipulate them. He became less fearful of his anticipatory fears and would abstain from talking himself out of the thoughts and instead allowed them, quote, free passage. Larissa Depression might seem to be very different from anxiety disorders, and on the surface they do look different. However, though the content may be different, the underlying processes are identical. Larissa was a severely depressed person who had just had a baby. Her baby was healthy and everything in her life was going reasonably well. She had a great husband, a wonderful house, good friends, and lots of money. What more could she want? And yet she was very depressed. She also had a mother who was very sick, and Larissa could not find enough time to take care of her. The mother didn't complain, but Larissa felt guilty that she was unable to do more to help her mother. The depression became so severe that she couldn't take good care of her baby, requiring extensive paid help, which only drained the family finances. Her husband had to work overtime to support the family and couldn't help with the considerable tasks at home, or offer his wife much emotional support, for he himself felt emotionally and physically drained. Larissa was in the same double bind that Susan and Larry were in. On the one hand, she had to deal perfectly with the stress of having a baby and having a mother with poor health. On the other hand, she became highly avoidant of dealing with these difficulties. On the one hand, she would not give herself permission to feel depressed, for she would tell herself she had no right to feel that way and that these feelings would be detrimental to her ability to function well. She had to be super strong under these difficult circumstances and not allow any weaknesses. Negative emotions to her were signs that she was a weakling and impaired in a deep, irreversible way. The result was that she would feel even more depressed, which would compel her to renew her efforts to eliminate all negative thoughts and feelings. The harder she tried, the more depressed she became. And the more depressed she became, the harder she tried to eliminate and control the depressed feelings. It was a vicious cycle that she wasn't able to extricate herself from, which would foster feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. At the same time, as her energy became depleted, she started to avoid dealing with parenting chores, and started to avoid her mother as well. She felt signs of extreme emotional and mental burnout. Since she had to be a perfect mother, she could not see herself hiring someone to help her. And yet she was too depressed to take good care of her baby. For example, she started to take lengthy naps and would even forget to feed her baby at the appropriate times. When the baby would cry, she would become even more unnerved and was unable to be around the baby. When her husband took matters in his hand and arranged for full-time care for the baby, Larissa's depression became worse than ever for her beliefs in being an incompetent person were fully realized. Anybody should be able to take care of a baby, especially she who wanted so much to have a baby and who had grand designs for her child. Here was someone who pressured herself to be a perfect mother, but who became extremely incompetent with even the simplest tasks of caregiving. One of Larissa's first challenges was to see that she was not abnormal or defective, that her desire to be a good mother was universal, And that her problems stemmed from her excessive insistence on taking care of her baby perfectly. So instead of being insistent on being completely free of stress, Larissa tried progressively to become more accepting of her feelings. She adopted a more easygoing, self accepting approach to her parenting. She gradually gave herself lots of latitude to be an average mother and to have reasonable expectations. The less pressure she put on herself to be the ideal caregiver, the better she coped, and her energy started to pick up. Larissa found it very powerful to hear that she was a normal person, and that in a sense she was being super normal. By not shaming herself incessantly and allowing herself to be an average caregiver, she discovered that she actually had excellent caregiving skills. She gradually came to love being a parent. This problem would have never developed Had Larissa not set such excessively high standards about needing to be a perfect parent to her child? She was encouraged to parent her child in a more natural and spontaneous style, being the kind of parent she authentically wanted to be, rather than conform to some artificially ideal standards that she needed to live up to. She gradually desisted from seeing parenting as a performance and as a more purposeful and pleasurable endeavor. Instead of focusing so much on her internal states and finding them defective, she was progressively able to leave her emotions alone and focus more on the task at hand. She came to see that her feelings had never been a problem, nor was the stress, but came to validate that taking care of her baby was a significant challenge, as it commonly is. And now that she wasn't all consumed by her internal states, and better able to let them be, her focus of attention gradually shifted away from herself and toward her parenting responsibilities, reconnecting with her mother and getting on with her life in a meaningful and purposeful way. Concluding note. The reader might infer from the way these cases are being presented that the therapy was simple and easy and proceeded very smoothly and without snags. That is not true. As was mentioned in the first chapter, emotional problems are complex. Complexity needs to be respected and be seen as normal and valid, for there is a strong tendency to minimize how complex these problems are and to see them as easy to get over, when the opposite is usually true. Denial and minimizing become ways people use in order to take an easy path to the perfect outcome they so desperately strive for, one that is totally free of negative feelings or any other, quote, blemishes. Minimizing the severity of a problem perhaps for the sake of having a positive attitude, merely gets people to avoid dealing with the complexities, the results are usually poor. It is also true that emotionally troubled people tend to exaggerate, which is the opposite of minimizing. For example, at the outset of therapy, people have an unbalanced view of how difficult or easy their problems are. On the one hand, they see them as easy to overcome, or at least they should be easy to overcome, And on the other hand, they see them as impossible to overcome. When asked how long they think it will take them to get well, they're likely to say they should be able to do it in two months at the maximum. At the same time, they admit they don't think they will ever get well. A balanced approach would be a lot more helpful. Emotional problems are difficult to get over, but not impossible. Such an approach is also authentic in the sense that it is real. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Making Peace with Emotions. Next week, we'll read Chapter 5 from Amar Bharata's book, Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. And Chapter 5 is called Getting Started, Mindfulness and the Initial Stages of Recovery. If you'd like to learn more about Amr Bharata, or me, You can find information on my website, that's www.marshallbolin.com. Until next time, peace.